Welcome to Health Talk from Mars. It's out of this world. And in today's topic, I want to cover what is the ideal diet, which is a very large topic that could take me six, nine hours to do. And that's how long when I was teaching at medical schools I took to cover the material. The ideal diet needs to take into consideration that it's not just about the individual but it's about the whole, and the whole includes the planet. So in previous podcasts, I've talked about the environment and how important that is to pay attention. In this ideal diet, we're going to include things like, well, is it really important to buy organic food? From an individual perspective, maybe not, but from a planetary perspective, yes, that's a really important topic because if everyone goes organic, It's going to change agriculture around. Right now, we are living in a situation where very large corporations are controlling our agriculture and generating genetically modified foods and using hormones in our food. And it's just, it's not healthy for the planet, certainly not healthy for the individual, but some individuals may be able to tolerate those things. The other thing is ethics, which we've talked about a little bit. I interviewed Dr. John Collins about the ethics of eating animals, and I put people towards the book Eating Animals by Jonathan Saffron Foyer. It's interesting, I was looking over a patient's diet diary yesterday, and a young chap, about 30 years old, and problems with digestive disorders and some mental also disorders as well. And it was interesting to just look and One of the things that I go through on someone's diet diary is just one, like the diversification of foods. So I can't state this strongly enough. It's really, really important to diversify what you're eating. In this day and age, we have a plethora of choices and the more diversified our diet, the better we're going to get many of the trace elements and some of the polyphenols that we need to protect us from the big killers, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, and dementia. So we want to pay attention to those things. You know, I I used to be called Dr. Fiber when I was the uh, professor at school. Dr. Fiber, Dr. Flavonoid, and Dr. Magnesium, because those things are really, really important. So your diet needs to include a very optimal amount of those nutrients. We talked about in previous episodes, Dr. Dennis Burkett, who discovered Burkitt's lymphoma, and he went to Africa and studied many of the indigenous cultures and found that their diet consisted of over 80 to 100 grams of fiber a day, and they had no diverticular disease, no stomach ulcers, no Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome, all these digestive disorders that we have in our modern industrialized culture, they don't have. So he came up with the concept that it's critically important to reach a certain level of fiber in your diet. The average American gets a poultry 11 grams of fiber. We need to shoot more for 40 to 50 grams of fiber or even higher. The American Cancer Society, I think, recommends about 25 grams of fiber, but that's really woefully kind of low, and we we should shoot for higher. Shoot higher, and then if you get to 80, 90% of that, 
that's great. That's going to do a good job. So a little bit about fiber. Fiber comes in two basic forms, soluble and insoluble. So insoluble fiber you can think of as like broccoli. You take a broccoli stem, you throw it into some water, you let it sit there. What happens? Nothing. Just sits there. If you take oats and you throw it into some water and you let it sit there, the water becomes a milky white color. That milky white color is coming from soluble fiber. So what's the difference? So 80% of the fiber that we eat is insoluble. 20% is soluble. The benefit of soluble fiber is that soluble fiber binds bile acids. So we're going to go a little bit of physiology here. So one of the things that happens when you digest food is that your liver manufactures bile salts. It spits it into the gallbladder, and the gallbladder spits it into your duodenum when you eat fat. So when that happens, the bile salts act as a soap, basically emulsifies that fat. When it emulsifies that fat, it then is able to get absorbed through the wall of the intestinal tract. So anything that's inside the intestinal tract is technically outside your body. And then to transport it into the bloodstream is phase one, and then phase two is to actually get it from the bloodstream into the cells. So those are two separate issues. So when you eat fat and the bile salts get spit into the duodenum and you emulsify the fat and you absorb the fat, those bile salts then get released, travel down your intestinal tract. And by the way, you have 20 feet of small intestine. And then when it reaches the last six inches, those bile salts get reabsorbed back into the body, into the bloodstream, goes back to the liver, and then the liver puts it back into the gallbladder. And that is known as the enterohepatic circulation. And that's all fine and dandy and great. So one of the things that soluble fiber does is that soluble fiber will bind bile acids after they do their job of emulsifying the fat and having you absorb that fat. So when it binds onto those bile acids and it gets down to the last part of the small intestine, what happens is they don't get reabsorbed back into the circulation. They don't go back to the liver. The liver takes a look at its watch and says, hey, you're supposed to be back here a half hour ago. I don't have time to wait for you. I'm going to make more bile salts and then give it to the gallbladder. So the liver pulls cholesterol out of the bloodstream because bile salts are composed of cholesterol. Drug companies have made billions of dollars on this phenomenon, and there's a drug called cholestyramine that's used to lower cholesterol. Rather than taking a drug, you could just do this with food, but you need to pay attention to how much fiber you're consuming. And as I mentioned, only 20% of the fiber that you ingest is going to be soluble fiber. The rest is insoluble. That doesn't have any effect on your cholesterol level. So you want to shoot, again, 40 to 50 grams, which is not easy. I give all my patients a handout. It's a table that lists the fiber content of food. And I say, okay, here's your job. On your next diet diary, you're going to try to get to that 40 to 50 gram sweet spot. And so it's a little bit of a game. But it's great because it gives some a focus, like what they can do, how they can achieve that. 
The other thing, aside from fiber as part of the ideal diet, is the flavonoid content. I talk about flavonoids till I'm blue in the face, no pun intended. Blue in the face, that's anthocyanidine. That's one type of polyphenol. So polyphenols is just a fancy way of saying all the different pigments that are found in foods. So when you eat your meal, you should take a look at your meal and see what color it is or how many colors you have. The more colors, the better. Again, getting back to diversification. That's what you're focused on, getting a diversified diet. I'm going to go through some foods in just a couple of minutes. The top 20 foods in the world that everyone should eat. And of course, there's other foods that I don't have listed, but they're in the same categories as the ones that I'm going to list. So we'll go through them and we'll talk about some of their properties. As I mentioned, fiber, polyphenols, and then you want to make sure that you're not ingesting a lot of toxicants. Toxicants are things that are found in foods that come from the environment. When you eat higher up on the food chain, that would be eating animals, you're going to get a concentrated source of these toxicants. As an example, fish. There was one report, I have a paper of a tuna that they caught. Can't remember where it was, somewhere in the ocean. It was 700-pound tuna. And the amount of mercury in that 700-pound tuna was about 10 to 15 times higher than the allowable limit by the EPA. So in the EPA, you could argue it's like mm, that, that level should be lowered by quite a bit. So eating lower on the food chain is very important. And this is going to be important when we talk about omega-3 fatty acids. What we want is to make sure that, one, you're getting a lot of fiber. Two, diversified diet. Three, you got a wonderful selection of polyphenols. And four, you want to make sure that you're not consuming a lot of toxicants. So that's kind of your goal when you're looking at the ideal diet. And... We'll talk about a couple lab things. Iron is a really important thing because iron can create inflammation in the body, increase your risk of cancer, increase your risk of diabetes, heart disease, inflammation, Alzheimer's, pretty much across the board. So you actually want your iron tissue levels to be low on the low side of normal. You don't want them in the middle and you certainly don't want them high. One-eighth of the human population carries one of the genes that codes for hemochromatosis. Hemochromatosis is a condition where you store too much iron. And when you store too much iron, as in the homozygous condition of hemochromatosis, you don't live past age 30. You die of fulminant oxidation, basically, heart disease. So if you blood donate on a regular basis, you can mitigate those problems that are associated with high iron. Okay, so now that we've laid out these parameters, one more parameter, and that is about the amount of protein that we take in. So there are some wonderful lectures. There's one, Dr. Telleran, I recommend, and I have a, a list of movies and a list of podcasts that I tell people to go look at because I can't possibly teach them everything that I know. Okay. So making sure that your protein intake is on the low normal side. Now, this is, I guess, kind of a, uh, I would say, controversial point. 
Uh, there are some people that believe that we should be consuming huge amounts of protein, much more than what the RDA is set at. So the RDA is set at 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. So if you weigh about 156 pounds, your requirement for protein is about 56 grams. What does that mean? 56 grams is really easy. A can of beans is 20 grams. Well, that's almost half of what you need. One of the things that we know, we've known this for a number of years now, is the level of animal protein is highly correlated to your risk of cardiovascular disease. The higher your animal protein intake, the more cardiovascular disease. And also cancer as well. So you don't want to be consuming lots of animal protein. The five blue zones, we've talked about that in the past. Five blue zones in the world, they don't eat a whole lot of meat. They eat mostly carbohydrates and they eat a diversified diet. So let's go through some foods that I would classify as ideal foods to be consuming. There's a lot of people that are sensitive to gluten. Gluten, that's a, another controversial topic because gluten is such that when you are making wheat, usually there's glyphosate in there. So glyphosate is an herbicide that's been used by the certain industries that make genetically modified foods because glyphosate will kill anything, any kind of weed, but won't kill the genetically modified food. So that's great when you're growing genetically modified foods. The food industry has found another use for glyphosate, of which you know we basically use 4.5 billion pounds a year. In a number of European countries, they've banned the use of glyphosate, which is great. So one spraying of glyphosate kills about 50% of all the earthworms in the ground. That's not really a good thing. So oftentimes I'll put people on gluten-free diets just to get them off of glyphosate and get them avoiding certain toxicants. But we know that people that travel to Europe, people in the United States that go to Europe and they eat wheat there, seem to be able to tolerate the wheat much better. Whether it's you know the way they leave in their bread, that they don't use glyphosate, uh, there's a number of different possibilities there to look at. So with that said, one of the things that we want to try, try to promote are foods that don't have gluten in them. And we want to get a diversified number of those foods. So buckwheat is a type of grain that does not have any gluten in it. Quinoa, teff, amaranth, all of these foods are foods that are seeds or grain-like substances that we can make breads and other foods. And you see them now on the market. There's a tremendous amount of them being used. You know, this morning I made cream of buckwheat. Cream of buckwheat is great because there are certain flavonoids in the buckwheat that aren't found in any other type of grain, any other type of fruit or vegetable. That's a good thing to know. And so when you're selecting your quinoa, as I mentioned, you want to select, make sure it's organic and also make sure it's a darker variety. The darker, the better. So red quinoa and black quinoa are going to be better because these particular foods have a variety of these polyphenols in them. And again, that's more polyphenols, the better. So that goes also for rice. People think, oh, brown rice, that's really healthy. Well, 
except for the arsenic in there, which is problematic. And white rice is, you might as well eat sugar, processed food. But So I recommend for people to eat forbidden rice or black rice or wild rice. Black rice or forbidden rice actually has less of the way of environmental toxins, including arsenic. So that's good. So we should take a look at that. Again, these foods are grown on a much smaller scale, which is good for the environment. So we're feeding two birds with one seed. Good for the environment, good for the individual. Okay, so now on to sweet potato. The Okinawans are one of the healthiest people in the world, and they compose one of the five blue zones of the world, where people live the longest in the world and don't get the common diseases like heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's. A fun fact about the Okinawans is that the Okinawans, they were under siege, they were under war, and about 50 years consecutively, their diet consisted of 80% sweet potatoes, which they call emo. And purple sweet potato is one of their favorites. In fact, you can see videos of trucks, kind of like ice cream trucks, transporting sweet potatoes in foil in these little coal ovens that they travel around with. And people run out and, and get some of these sweet potatoes that are baked. And it's like, wow, that's great. If all the ice cream trucks got replaced with sweet potato trucks, we'd be a healthier society for sure. One of the things that we tell people is to make sure they consume as much of that food as possible. So if you're eating the sweet potato, eat the skin because the skin has certain nutrients, trace elements that might not be in the inside of the flesh part of that food. Make sure that when you're eating those foods, that they are organic. Otherwise, they're going to be contaminated with various toxicants. So we want to avoid those toxicants. One of the things they discovered, carrots, for example, is on one of the top 20 foods in the world that we should all be consuming. My mom, when we were growing up, she always peeled the carrots. But my grandmom, she always took a little sponge or a little brush and just brushed them much better for you because many of the trace elements and the nutrients in the carrot are actually in the skin. So better to eat the whole carrot. And in fact, if you eat the greens, also better. I make this soup. This is a soup that was made by the Buchinger Institute in Germany. It's a fasting clinic. And one of the things they made was a soup that you put the greens from carrots, the greens from beets, the greens... From could be from amaranth, by the way, amaranth greens, also known as velita, sold just freely in many of the restaurants in Greece. So if you go to Greece and you see velita on the menu, buy it. The other one is horta. Horta are wild greens that grow up in the hills. Another important food. Again, this is a way that you can diversify your diet. My dad growing up used to eat dandelions and wild purslane. It just grew wild outside. They threw that into the salad. So again, that's what we want to try to do. Eat as many diversified foods as possible. All right, so I want to give a shout out to beans or legumes. There's many different kinds. There's black beans and pinto beans and lima beans and canola beans. All of these beans 
contain a significant amount of soluble fiber. There are some podcasts and some researchers who believe that beans are the most toxic thing you can eat because they contain lectins. I just want to dispel that myth. All of the blue zones in the world eat beans three times a day, different kinds of beans. If that's true, if they're so toxic, why do they live so long? Obviously, there's a problem with that theory. One of my favorite foods that I recommend for people, this is called the brassica family, of which there are a number of foods in this family, and they are found to be highly protective against various types of cancers. So these foods would include cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, and the thing about these foods is they contain various compounds. One is called indole-3-carbonyl, and there is a compound in these foods called glucosinolate. So glucosinolate, why that's very important is because it gets converted by an enzyme called myrosinase. So myrosinase converts this glucosinolate into sulforaphane. Sulforaphane is the magic compound that protects us from all sorts of different types of cancers, especially breast cancer and prostate cancer, which are big, big killers. So you want to try to get as much as possible. And here's a shout out to broccoli sprouts. So broccoli sprouts contain about 100 times more glucosinolate than regular broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage. Again, if you're selecting cabbage, for example, the purple cabbage, I would say, is going to be more beneficial, more flavonoids in there. So one of the things that we didn't mention about is whether we should eat raw or cooked foods. Very important topic when we are discussing the ideal diet. And this brings up the perfect example of why some of the foods that we eat should be raw and some of them should be cooked. There should be a balance, a diversification of these foods. When you cook broccoli or some of the brassica family, and if you cook them too much, you will destroy the enzyme myrosinase. And myrosinase is that enzyme that converts glucosinolate into sulforaphane. So they've done some really interesting studies, and they showed that frozen vegetables, frozen broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, during the process of blanching them before they freeze them, they expose them to a temperature of about 190 degrees. And at that temperature, that pretty much kills all of the myrosinase, inactivates it. So not great. And I think it was the University of Wisconsin did a study where they said, well, what if we don't bring the temperature up to 190 degrees? What if we bring it to 175? Will that still do what we needed to do in order to freeze that vegetable? And the answer was yes. And the answer also on the myrosinase is that over 90% of the myrosinase was preserved. So it's like, aha. So these are little tweaks that the food industry can make to make our food healthier for us. The unfortunate thing is they don't do these things because it's not cost effective. I want to talk about nuts and seeds. So nuts and seeds are a really important part of the diet because they contain essential fatty acids. And we're going to be talking about in another podcast essential fatty acids and what they are. Essential fatty acids are fats that 
your body cannot live without. And there's basically two types of fatty acids. There's linoleic acid and linolenic acid. Both of these fats are what we call polyunsaturated. Polyunsaturated means that they have double bonds between their carbons. And all you really need to know is that the more double bonds you have between the carbons, the more sensitive that fat is to oxidation. So this is going to be important with regards to eating these foods. So many of the commercial nuts and seeds that we eat have become oxidized because they haven't been stored properly. So this is a really, really important topic, and it's something that we need to pay much more attention to. So ever since I was a little kid, my mom always had nuts and seeds in the freezer. And she knew way back then that putting them in the freezer was going to greatly reduce the amount of rancidity or the amount of oxidation that takes place in those fatty acids. So again, this is a controversial point, like how much in the way of fatty acids should we consume? One of the things that we know is that when we study paleolithic diets, we found that paleolithic diets consisted of a lot of omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fatty acids are polyunsaturated fats that create an anti-inflammatory condition in the body. And also your brain, your brain is made up of 70% fat. So the fat that you eat is the fat that goes into your brain. So the more omega-3 fatty acids that you eat, the higher the percentage in your brain of omega-3 fatty acids, less inflammation, less dementia, less Alzheimer's. So you really want to pay attention to how much you're consuming. Most nuts and seeds predominantly are omega-6 fatty acids. There's a few nuts, like walnuts, for example, that do have some in the way of omega-3 fats. Flax seeds have some omega-3 fats. But again, it's relatively small. And so one of the controversial points is, are fish considered to be a food that we should essentially be consuming? And there's some ethics involved here, but there's also the environment. There's a movie documentary called Sea Spiracy. Once you see that documentary, you're probably going to eat not much in the way of fish. And so one of the oceanographers in the documentary stated that at the rate that species are becoming extinct in the ocean, that we probably aren't going to have any fish in the ocean by 2050. That's just right around the corner. That doesn't bode well for humans. So we need to take that into consideration when we're looking at our intake of omega-3 fatty acids. So there are omega-3 fatty acids found in greens, small amounts, but the fat that's there is a high percentage of omega-3, which is why we want to consume much more in the way of that plant food. And if you're consuming in the neighborhood of 80 to 100 grams of fiber, most likely you're going to get a significant amount of omega-3 fats from all those leafy vegetables that you're consuming. If you eat nuts and seeds, you want to eat a diversified number of them, and you want to keep them in the freezer, and you only want to eat a small amount per day. Depending upon your blood profile, that could change, but you want to keep your fats not to a really high amount, a handful of nuts or seeds 
a day. Make sure they're kept cold in the refrigerator. Make sure where you buy them from, they're not highly processed because that's going to damage those essential fatty acids. So we mentioned about wild greens. I mentioned wild purslane. I mentioned dandelions. Any type of wild greens that you can get. So grow them in your yard. So part of the ideal diet is eating food from your own garden. Whether you have a small apartment with a little terrace, a little porch, a little deck, just grow something, some greens that you can eat, you know, at least a few times a week. Again, diversification is everything. So we talked about carrots before. Carrots, originally that's where we found carotenoids. So carotenoid pigments are yellow-orange pigments that are critical for our vision, especially night vision. And so these carotenoids are also very protective against skin cancer. So one of the things that you want to do if you travel to an area and you're going to be in the sun and you're going to get a high exposure, you should consume a high level of carotenoids before you go there so that you can colorize your skin from the inside. So one cup of carrot juice has 120,000 units of carotenoids, and it's mixed carotenoids. So one of the best things you can do. A cup of carrot juice every day for a week would be great to get your skin colored. We talked about legumes, beans, and that the healthiest people in the world eat beans, and they eat them three times a day. So one of the things that we know is in Okinawa, they consume a significant amount of soy. So soy, again, is very controversial, and it's something that unfortunately has gotten a really bad rap. Well, in the United States, 97% of soy is genetically modified. With that said, the game's over right away. So if you're starting with a genetically modified soy product, now you've got a product that's been sprayed with glyphosate. There's a great documentary called The Future of Food, and it was done in 2007. But it just exposes all the problems with genetically modified foods. One of the critiques of soybeans that, well, soybeans, they, can, they contain estrogen compounds, phytoestrogens. And if males eat too much soy, they're going to grow man boobs because of the estrogen. That is actually completely false. The phytoestrogens that are found in soy are about a thousand times less potent than the estrogens that you normally make in your body. And that goes for males as well. So we're in a situation where it's like, well, if that's true and someone has an estrogen-dependent cancer, that means that soy would be really, really beneficial because it binds onto the receptors and it prevents endogenous estrogen from binding onto those receptors which stimulate cancer. So that whole notion that soy is banned, and it's been shown women you know, supplementing soy is actually really beneficial for cancer, anti-cancer. It's both protective and you can also treat cancer with soy. So soy, again, has a significant amount of fiber in it, has a significant amount of soluble fiber. Soy milk is something that I do recommend, highly recommend unsweetened soy milk is really good. But in addition to having 
uh, soluble fiber. It also has a significant amount of omega-3 fatty acids. So the more soy you consume, the more in the way of omega-3 fatty acids, the better your ratio is going to be in your brain. In addition, there are certain lectins that are found in soy that have been found to be highly protective against cancer. Fermented soy is really the optimal way to consume soy. So there's a product, there's a food product called natto. Natto has a significant amount of MK7. So what's MK7? MK7 is a compound derivative of vitamin K. It's a particular compound that stimulates the production of osteocalcin. Osteocalcin is a protein found in your bone that binds calcium ions. So the MK7 is very beneficial at treating and preventing osteoporosis. So natto is a food that if you can find it and you can use it, is a great food to use. So all in all, soybean is really quite good. Just if it's genetically modified, then the game's over. Then you shouldn't be consuming that. There are some soys, a very small percentage of soy, that's not organic and it's not genetically modified. And they can come from smaller farms. So there's a small company in Portland that's been selling soybean products, tofu, for about 40 years now called OTA. And it's like, it's great. I like to support smaller farmers that aren't, you know, on these very large plantations and stuff. So better for the environment. So let's leave that off right here. So thank you for listening. I'm going to do the second half of the 20 most important ideal foods in the world to eat. Thanks for listening. Health Talk from Mars. Over and out. <laughs>